welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 13, starting in verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. So this, uh, this book of Hebrews, we're almost done. We're kind of in the final stretch here. We've been doing it for about 17 years. And... Uh, no, but it's been really good. Um, the writer of Hebrews wrote this, as I've told you guys a bunch of times, to strengthen a small band of believers who were living in the Roman Empire, and they were in the first century, and they were under uh, persecution and temptation like crazy. And so he wrote this letter, and you can imagine as he's kind of wrapping up the letter, he's finishing it up, and he's sending it off with prayer that he might wonder, like, are these suffering saints going to make it, you know? Are they going to make it to the end? And we know from history they did, actually. We know historically that the Roman churches actually not only survived, but they thrived and eventually transformed the entire Roman Empire and all the world, really. And how did they do it? And they did it, really, guys, through the ordinary practices that are in this chapter. You know, sometimes we think, you know, especially right now, people are really worried about the state of the world and stuff like that, and they think that somehow Christians maybe need some new radical way of behaving, some, some way to really take back the culture or something like that. But I want you guys to be encouraged by this, that, that the world was overcome, the Roman Empire and all that, through the ordinary practices of Hebrews 13. And so we're going to see what some of those practices are. I, what I don't want you guys to do, I don't want you to underestimate the power of an ordinary Christian life. The ordinary Christian life, guys, has power. We can see that even here, that it overcame empires. And so what are the simple practices we're going to look at this morning? It's things like he called them to follow their leaders, to be strengthened by grace, and to live in gratitude. Those seem like really simple things, right? And yet they're so powerful. So first, he says, follow your leaders. And he he says, follow your leaders. He says, follow the living ones and the dead ones. Actually, this passage is bracketed by the command to follow leaders. In the top, verse 7, you've got follow leaders who who have passed away, who have gone before us. And then at the end, in verse 17, you've got follow leaders that are currently in the church, leading leading the church. And uh, let's look at verse 7. It says, 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. He's talking here about leaders that had passed away, leaders of the church that were gone. The reason I say that is they had to be remembered, right? They were probably the ones that first preached the gospel to them. They were probably the ones that planted the church. And he says, remember them. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Imitate their faith. What's really neat there is he's, he's not just saying, think about what they taught you. But he's also saying, think about what that teaching did in their own lives. The things they taught and how they played out in their own lives. We're Americans, and because we're Americans, we tend to think we're wiser than our ancestors, don't we? Which is really weird when you compare it to basically every other culture. Every other culture assumes our ancestors were wiser. We assume we're wiser than our ancestors, and so it makes it really hard for us to believe that there are things we can learn from believers in the past, right? Verse 7 says that they have something to teach us about how to follow Christ, and why shouldn't they? Verse 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If, if they were following and filled by the same Christ, then it makes sense that we would learn from them how we should follow Christ. And, and guys, one of the nice things about following dead church leaders is that we can see the outcome of their life, right? We see how it all turned out. Their lives uh, are completed and sent off to the printer, right? We can see how it all turned out. You're very unlikely to, you know, find that there was new, some new scandal about Athanasius, you know, that really it was a real scoundrel and, or somebody like that, you know. Their failures are there. It's not that they weren't flawed and had failures and weaknesses, but they're known. And we can see the outcome of their faith. We can see how their, their teaching played out in their lives. And it's just such a huge blessing. I think this is one thing that we don't, as, you know, modern evangelicals, we don't think enough about is church history, about the people that went before us. I love reading their biographies trying to get to know some of these people so that I can do this verse, right? See the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. I love, uh, I love Charles Spurgeon. Anybody love Charles Spurgeon? That uh, cigar-smoking Baptist of the 1800s. I love just like how boisterous he was, how bold he was in his love for Jesus, how bold he was for his love for the lost. I also love how he was so open with his struggles. Now keep in mind, this is Victorian England, and he would get up in the pulpit and talk about how depressed he was. And how he could hardly even make it here, you know? Just an amazing man that just talked about, did you guys know that? He dealt with crippling depression. You know, this, this bigger-than-life, extroverted, love-people guy, also at times when he was in severe darkness. And um, we've got books. You guys are wondering how this turns out. I've got a few copies of this book called Spurgeon's Sorrows. So if you wanted to get to know a saint from before, you could learn about Spurgeon. You could learn specifically about um, his struggles with depression. But I just love how open he was about it so that he could help others. I love John Newton. He's a pastor from the 1700s. And before Newton was saved, he was a ship captain. He was a slave trader. When he came to Christ, he became a really influential abolitionist. He's a pastor. He's a hymn writer. What hymn did he write? Amazing Grace. Everybody knows that. He wrote a ton of others, like 100 hymns. And um, God turned this incredibly cruel and violent man. I mean, if you learn about his life, he was a slave trader and there was all sorts of other like murderous things going on that he did. He was this super cruel and violent man and God turned him into one of the kindest men really in church history. Good way to get to know him would be find a book of John Newton's letters, the letters he wrote to people, and you can just see his amazing gift of encouragement. Super gentle, kind man. I love Augustine. We'll go way back. Fourth century, North African bishop. He loved God with his whole heart. Like usually he's depicted in art as holding a flaming heart up to the Lord. 
Like, that's what he's about. Super passionate for the Lord. He's giving his flaming heart to him. Now, he was always passionate. He was passionate about his own fame before he became a Christian. He was passionate about womanizing. He had a terrible life before he became a Christian. Um, but God got a hold of him, and get, he gave his whole heart to God. And you can read about him in the Confessions. How many of you guys have read the Confessions? Oh, there's like a section. Do it again. There's statistically more in this row over here than you got some over here too. Okay. Then ignore you guys. Um, but it's just amazing. It's all written in the form of a prayer. So he's talking to God the entire time. It's amazing. It's totally worth reading. Amazing guy. I love these guys. I have some of their heads on my desk. And not their actual heads. They're like little bronze heads. Is that weird? Maybe? Shouldn't have mentioned that. Like, they're bronze heads, and they're in a row. You guys don't have that? Anyway, I have these bronze heads, and uh, it is kind of weird. And Mason, I know Mason thought it was weird because he was at Star Wars, and he found a bronze Yoda head, and he put him next to him. So it's like, it's like Augustine, Calvin, Spurgeon, Yoda. And so, but you don't have to do that. Uh, but I, I would just encourage you guys, find some people from church history, read some biographies, maybe some missionaries, maybe some pastors, maybe some uh, women in church history that just really stick out as somebody you could follow. You know, you could obey this text, which says those who spoke the word of God consider the outcome of their, their way of life and imitate their faith. And you don't have to have their heads on your desk unless you're inclined. I know where you can get some, though. So if you guys are looking for heads... Yeah, Israel knows too. Israel's like, I know that website. Yeah, there's a website for that. Some are sold out, so not all the heads will be available. But we also need living church leaders. Take a look at, you drop down to verse 17. He talks, so that's the dead ones that we need to follow. And then there's the living ones. He says in verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. And uh, I just want to ask you guys, because I think this will be fun. How many of you guys are triggered by that? Okay. How many of you guys are triggered by obey and submit to your pastors? Did you show hands? Oh, they actually showed their hands. They're triggered. You guys triggered? Who's triggered? Who's been triggered? Okay. Some have been triggered. I've been triggered. Slightly triggered. Anymore? Some of y'all lying. That's fine. Whatever. I get it, guys. I'm Gen X, and that means I have authority issues in general. And uh, there are clear limits to submission, a pastor can't insist on anything he can't show you in the Word of God. I think that's really important. You guys may not always be in this church. You might be in some other church. You might get under some weird person that's trying to insist on you doing things that aren't in the Word. If they can't show you, if they can't point to the verse in the passage, then, then you know what that's called? Advice. And you can take it or leave it. But if a pastor, if we can show you something in the Word of God, then your submission to it is not a submission to us. It's a submission to God. Amen? And I'll tell you, I really struggled with this verse. When Tasha and I first moved to the valley uh, in 2000, we joined a church called Menifee Valley Church, and um, I started leading the college ministry, and the, um, the church later split and dissolved. I had nothing to do with it, just so you know. But our college ministry continued to thrive. It was called Kaleo, and it was legendary. It was amazing. At one point, we had like over 50 college kids coming to our house on Sunday nights, and so they'd be like up the stairs, and it was amazing. Some of you were there bunch of you there. How many people were there in our house? Yeah, that's awesome. How many of you guys were there after we left our house and we were meeting in other places? Yeah, Scott and a bunch of you. So cool. And uh, it was amazing. And uh, we attended a new church. 
But we kept the college ministry separate because I didn't really think I needed to get any pastors involved in this thing. This was kind of my thing, right? I want to get any pastors involved in this, right? Gen X, authority issues. You guys know. If you know, you know. But until I was teaching through Hebrews, so this is 2004, teaching through Hebrews, and you know how it is. You know what's coming. You've read the book before. And I knew this verse was coming. And so in 2004, I finally got to verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls. And so I taught this passage with some uneasiness. The uneasiness of a person studiously trying to avoid doing what the passage says, but doing that in front of everyone. Because the thing is, when you read through Scripture, if you find a verse you don't like, you kind of just skirt right past it. When you teach the Bible verse by verse, you have to do that in front of everyone. Okay? You have to go like, okay, so there's verse 18, you know, and moving on. And I remember I, afterwards I went in the kitchen. I was talking to Tasha. And I was like, hey, what would you think of that? And I knew what she thought of it. She goes, I think we're not doing it. And I was like, she said nicer than that. She goes, I think we're not doing it. And uh, so within a few days, we actually had a meeting, a bunch of the guys in the ministry, and we decided to put it under a local church. So it was like within weeks, it became a part of a local church because of this text. You know, this text was like clear, right, that we should submit to, to pastors, to leaders. And it was great because Josh and Renee met there, so that was good. Got a marriage out of that. And uh, all the rest of us got to learn how to submit to pastors, which I wasn't very good at. And some of you guys saw that. I was a pain. But I think the thing is with this passage is that I didn't see, I just didn't see a need for somebody to keep watch over my soul. Like, I got that. I, don't, I didn't feel a need for somebody else to keep watch over my soul. I didn't see the gift of this. But guys, this is a real gift. I mean, think about it, that God would give men who actually want to watch over my soul. They want to watch over my soul. And they want to lead me by God's word. Me, and I'm a pain, you know? And they wanted to give an account for me to God. And I just, you know, now that I think about it, I'm like, who would do that? You know, well, I would do that. But, I mean, it's a strange thing, right? It's a strange thing that somebody, a man would want to keep watch over other people's souls and to lead them by the word and to give an account for them. I mean, think about that. On the final day, giving an account before God for y'all. And yet, that's what God calls us to do as pastors. He gives us this desire. And, and it's a gift. I just, I didn't see it as a gift to myself to have pastors in my life. And we have three. We have Gabe and Josh and myself um, we don't do what's called a Moses model. You guys ever heard of the Moses model? No? The Moses model is just the idea that there's one pastor, he kind of hears from God, and he gets the vision, and he leads the church, and all that by himself. The thing about that is, is the New Testament does not teach that at all, okay? That's why they call it a Moses model, because you can't find the New Testament. And the other thing is, it was kind of awful for Moses. You know? If you go back and you read, like, even Moses hated the Moses model, okay? So... <laughs> We don't do that, right? We do what's called a plurality of elders. And what's cool is because we have three pastors, I get to submit to and have my soul watched over as well. And it is such a blessing, guys. I am super thankful to have Josh and to have Gabe leading me and keeping watch over my soul. I'm happy to submit to them. And I think you should be too. God's given us a gift here. So uh, I would just say too, pray that God would provide more and more of them in our church and in the in the world in general. I don't know if you guys have seen the statistics, but it's something like 40% of pastors say if they could get out, they would. And when you have commands like, you know, that they shouldn't lead under compulsion, <laughs> 40% are. You know, that's crazy, right? 
And it's necessary. So just pray that God would stir up more and more men to have a heart to do this. And verse 17 says that you should help them enjoy doing it. Take a look at verse 17. This is great. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Isn't that great? You know, there's something about us as Americans. We think it's like our duty to drive authorities in our lives. Crazy. It's like, that's how we're being faithful. Like, we got to keep them honest, you know? And like, basically torture, you know, the government. We'll, we'll rebel against them as much as we can. You know, we'll rebel against uh, people in our families and stuff like that. And what this text is saying is like, help the authorities in your life and pastors, whether it's husbands, whether it's fathers, help them enjoy what they're doing. Like, it's really of no advantage to any church for them to just make their pastor's life miserable. And I want you guys to know, I'm not miserable, by the way. I love it. I love it. And you guys have made it a pleasure. But this text is really great because it says, happy leaders lead best, right? And so I just say in your family, wives, make your husband's leadership a pleasure to do. Children, make your parents' leadership, their authority, a pleasure to do. And I want to just say to you guys, you guys have made it a pleasure for us. We enjoy this. We're having a great time doing it. And, and we should, you know, joy energizes our work. You know, you get the best leaders when they're most encouraged. And you know what makes pastors the happiest, good pastors? What makes them the happiest is when they see you growing in Jesus. Like that's the way to give a pastor joy. Nothing makes us happier, guys, than to see people in our church loving and serving and enjoying God more. Like that's what it's about. That's what we're here to do. That's what the writer of Hebrews wanted, right? Because he's one of those leaders. What does he want? His whole letter is about showing how wonderful Jesus is. Follow him, love him, enjoy him. Listen to what the Apostle John said about it. He said this to some, some people that he had led as a pastor. He said this, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. Isn't that cool? You guys know that as parents. And it's the same way for pastors. It's like, there's no greater joy than that. And so uh, follow your leaders. Secondly, be strengthened by grace. He, he warns them about a, a false teaching that's going on in verse 9. He says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. If something's new, if something's strange, it's false teaching, right? And you're like, oh, I never heard that before. Like, that's a bad sign. Unless you're just like brand new to the Bible. But if you're not, you know, it's a bad sign. These false teachers were encouraging them to return to the Old Testament food laws that if they would somehow, you know, change their diet, that they would be closer to God. And I love what he says to them. You know, he's this false teacher. Like, if you really want to be close to God, eat this food. And he says this. He's like, we have better food. It's called grace. Take a look at verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have no benefit to those who are devoted to them. Those Old Testament laws about food never brought anybody closer to God, Right? Only grace can do that. You guys know what grace is? Anybody got a definition of a grace? Somebody want to give us a definition? Grace? It's a gift. What else? Unearned. What's that? Unearned. unearned. Yeah, it's unearned. It's a gift. It's something we have no right or claim to. It's God's kindness to us, right? It's, it's a, a totally a gift. And that's what draws us into God, right? And he uses the Old Testament priests here as an example of how special foods can't bring you closer to God. This is where it gets in the weeds, but it's really cool when you see what he's doing, okay? What he's doing is he's saying the priests were the ones that everybody thought of as the closest to God, right? Because they're in the temple. And not only that, but they got to eat the most holy food. You guys realize the priests actually got to eat some of the sacrificial meat. So 
offer the sacrifice, and they slice off a little meat for themselves. They could do that. They were allowed to do that. So here you have the people that seem like they'd be the closest to God. They're eating the most holy food, right? And, and what does he say to them? Because this is the food you think. This is the, these are the people that are eating the thing that brings them the closest to God. And what does he say? Look at verse 9. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who were devoted to them. And then listen to this. We have an altar from which those who serve in the tent or the temple have no right to eat. Isn't that amazing? He's like, you guys are, you know, eating some of the sacrificial meat. We have an altar we can eat from that they are not allowed to touch. Isn't that amazing? He says, we have better food, and the better food is grace, and it's from a better altar, which is the cross, right? That when Jesus died on the cross, on that altar of the cross, he spread out a banquet of grace for us as much as we need all that we want. Isn't that amazing? And it's a better food, and it's a food that those unbelieving priests had no right to eat. And, and this welcome that we have to receive grace, we got because Jesus was forsaken. And he's got a really beautiful image of that here, too, in verse 11, of how Jesus was forsaken in our place so that we could be welcomed in. Check it out. For the bodies, this is when it gets really interesting, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. You're like, what in the world is this? Anyone hear this and be like, what in the world is going on, right? This is really cool, though, when you see what he's doing here. So they would take these bulls, sacrifice them. Blood gets offered on the altar. Sorry if this is your first time in church. This is very bloody. It gets even bloodier. Um, they would sacrifice in the Old Covenant. They would sacrifice the, the bull. They would offer its blood. And then they've got this, like, gigantic carcass to deal with, right? And you can't just, like, light it on fire and it goes away. I mean, it's not nuclear, you know. you got to drag that carcass outside of town and burn it. It's crazy, right? I was talking to David, and he was like talking about how people are talking about, you know, reinstituting the sacrifices and stuff like that. And he goes, they have no idea how messy this is, okay? There's a lot of blood. So, okay, so they're taking this carcass, this bull carcass, out of the temple, and they take it outside of town, and they, they burn it, right? And so the blood illustrates that a death had to happen in our place, a substitute to pay for our sins. But the carcass outside of town burning shows that that sacrifice to come has to be forsaken by God. Because that's what it meant. To be driven outside the camp or to be driven outside the city was a way of illustrating being forsaken by God. So this sacrifice is both uh, sacrifice for sin and then forsaken by God. And he's saying here that Jesus fulfilled both parts. He's the sacrifice for sin. His blood washes away our sin. But he's also the one forsaken. You guys remember where they crucified him? Outside the city, right? Golgotha was outside the city. That's, that's not an accident. That's to fulfill this. Can we just stop and just realize how cool this is? And it isn't just cool like the author of Hebrews can find all these amazing details in the Old Covenant. It's amazing because God put them there, right? When he gave all these rules about what to do with the carcass and all this stuff, God was thinking of when his son was going to offer himself for us, that he was going to be forsaken in our place so that we could be welcomed in. This is amazing. The artistry of it. I know you guys are like carcasses, blood, but isn't it wonderful? It's so wonderful. Okay, it is wonderful. 
And I also want you guys to see what he did there, which is really cool. So false teachers are saying, hey, you're not as close to God as you could be. Eat this food, you'll be closer to God. And notice how he refutes it. He says, we have better food and we have better access than even their priest did. The way the author responds is he goes, what exactly are you trying to offer me with this religious diet? And they're like, well, you'll get closer to God. And it's like, no, too late. (laughs) We're way closer to God than any of the unbelieving priests ever were. Like, well, it's better food. No, we've got grace. Isn't that amazing? This is something to think about, guys. Whenever you're approached by false teachers, you know, maybe at your door. And they're telling you this thing or that thing about Jesus not really being God or telling you different things that you need to do. I think you should ask them, what exactly are you offering me that I don't already have in Jesus? Right? I had an occasion where I was talking to a couple Mormons. They came to our door. I was talking to them. And I was like, before we begin, let me just like explain what I have in the gospel. And so I kind of talked about, you know, Christ paid it all and the intimacy I have with God and it's not based on my works at all. And he's put his spirit in me to transform my life. And then I asked him, like, what do you guys think of that? And the, the more junior one said, oh yeah, we don't have that. And the older one was like, stop, you know, like we're not bringing you anywhere, you know. But like, that's one thing with false teachings. We have to realize there's nothing better being offered. How many of you guys have been approached by the mother God people? It's crazy. How many are there? You know, they're everywhere. (laughs) Have you heard about this? Yeah, well, when you talk to them, ask them what exactly they're offering that's better than what you have in Jesus, because it's not clear. And it's very clear it's not in Scripture. We have grace, guys. We have as much as we need. And it's grace not only to forgive us, but to make us stronger, like Eric was talking about. Grace is not just forgiveness, but it's strength. And, and we can see that in this passage. It's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Understanding the gospel and dwelling in the gospel and absorbing the gospel will make us stronger. It's going to make us strong enough to do anything God's called us to do. These people had a hard calling, right? Look at verse 13. This was their calling. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. What was their calling? Their calling was to follow Jesus in a place where everyone hated them for it. Isn't that crazy? These guys needed strength, and they got it, right? They got it from God. They got grace that made them strong enough to do it. They could endure any human rejection knowing that they had God's acceptance. And I just want to say to us, like, in everything we face, is we need to be strengthened by grace, We need to be doing it every day. Every day we need to be in the word and we need to be seeing the gospel and we need to be feeding on God's love for us because we will be attacked, right? You think, oh, it's just Wednesday. It'll be fine. My schedule looks good. It's all good. You're going to be attacked. You need to be strengthened by grace. You know, this isn't like a guilt trip of like, hey, you need to read the Bible. And if you read the Bible, then you can feel like you're really accepted before God, blah, 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 blah. It's not that. It's like you need food, If you haven't been reading scripture, you shouldn't feel guilty. You should feel hungry. You feel the weakness. And you're like, I need to see again how much God loves me. Guys, you can approach the altar of grace anytime. We also approach it in prayer, right? You feel weak. You feel embattled. You feel like you can't go on anymore. You just stop at the altar of grace and you receive his filling, right? We have an altar to eat from that the priest couldn't even touch. 
Like you have an access in Christ where you could come in so weak and so beat up and so tempted, and you could come to him and you could just ask him for this and he'd fill you. You guys know that, right? Anytime you've stopped, right? Like really stopped. Not like, you know, you're being tempted by some sort of lust or whatever. You're like, oh Lord, please help me with this. And you just kind of go on. Well, that's not doing it, right? You need to stop. You need to probably out loud call out to God and say, give me this grace. Feed me. I know I have an altar to, to eat grace from that I've been given in Christ. Fill me. And so there's uh, being strengthened by grace. Also, we should live in gratitude. How do we respond to this grace? Uh, we live in gratitude, and that's in verses um, 15 and 16. Our lives are a sacrifice of thanksgiving. We have no sacrifice for sin. Jesus did that, right? But we do have a life that is a, it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's Jesus has done it all, he's paid it all, and now we get to live in gratitude. You guys know the, the catechism we use, the Heidelberg Catechism. The outline of it is guilt, grace, gratitude. And it's, it's modeled after the book of Romans, which is guilt, grace, gratitude. We see our need for Jesus, we see the grace we have in Christ, and then we live out in gratitude. And somehow we, we have a hard time doing this, right? But it's so beautifully simple. Jesus did it all. He paid the debt for our sin. And now we live in gratitude. And how do we do that? We do it by praising God and blessing our neighbors. Praising God, that's in verse 15. And blessing our neighbors, that's in verse 16. Look at verse 15. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips, which is such an interesting expression. The fruit of lips that acknowledges his name, right? So what do we do? So sinners saved by grace. Jesus did it all. There's no salvation for us to, to build or to work out. It's all given to us. It's all grace. How do we live from here? We just thank him. That's simple. We can do that, right? We just thank him. We just praise him. We got so much. We have a ton to be thankful for, right? For his grace. Amen? You got a lot to be thankful for? We just live our whole life just thanking him. We can't pay him back. Don't try and pay him back. You don't earn it and you don't pay it back. You just thank him. And it's so enjoyable to thank him. Don't you love it? Like, especially when we do it together, it's so enjoyable, you know, to offer him a sacrifice of praise. It's wonderful. We should do it all the time. He says, do it continually. It says, do it with your lips. So apparently you're going to do it out loud. There you go. You could do it in front of people, you know, they might want in on it, right? We're worshiping, we're thanking him, we're praising him in front of people. So we praise God and then we bless our neighbor. Take a look at verse 16. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for with such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's a couple ways we can go wrong with works. And I know it's kind of late in the message to do this and you're fading. You guys okay? There's, there's two ways to go wrong with works, at least. There's probably more. One of them would be that you think of works are the way that you earn your salvation. That's called legalism. Another way is that you realize you can't earn your own salvation, so you don't care about works at all. That's called antinomianism. That's the word I'm afraid to tell you because that's where you fall asleep, okay? <laughs> so one way is to think you're going to earn your salvation. That's legalism. The other way is, oh, you can't earn your salvation, so works don't matter. That's antinomianism. Notice something about both of those. Both of those make works about you, okay? In the first case, works are about saving yourself, so your works are about you. In the second case, you know, works don't save, so you don't bother because it's all about you, right? Why do good works if they don't save you? It's all about you anyway, right? Both the antinomian and legalists make the works about themselves. Meanwhile, there are all these lonely, anxious, hurting people all around us. 
what if our good works aren't about us at all? What if our good works aren't about saving or not saving us, right? What if our good works are to bless each other, to bless others? You see how we got it all twisted when it's all about us? You're like, oh, I don't want to do good works because, you know, those don't save me. I'm an antinomian. You know, it's like, okay, well, that's about you. Or I need to do good works because I need to save myself. Well, that's about you too. Luther said this, and this is beautiful. God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? <laughs> you like that? God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. Right? And so we should praise God and bless our neighbors. And if we do both of them, it's great evangelism. But look at verse 16. It says, do good and share what you have. So think about this. Conspire to do good, right? What good can you do? What good could you do this week for somebody that's, that's lonely? Okay, think, guys. Let's all think of somebody that we know that's lonely, right? What good could we do for them? What good could we do for an anxious person? You guys know any anxious people besides yourselves? Okay. What good could we do for them? Uh, think of a person that feels hopeless. What good could we do for them? Let's think of somebody in pain. What good could we do for them, right? This isn't about saving ourselves. This isn't about us at all. This is about loving other people, right? Or he says to share what you have. What do you have to share? You have, do you have time to share? You know, could you, could you spend some time this week listening to somebody or just being present? Do you have money to share? You buy somebody groceries. You could buy somebody gas, something like that. Um, do you have service to share? This is really helpful, right? Like maybe you have something you could do. You could run errands. You could give somebody a ride. You could fix something. There's one guy in a church that is very inclined mechanically, which is so awesome, right? I mean, what a, what a cool deed, you know? I could come over and read him a Bible verse and talk about it, but this guy could fix your car, and that's amazing. And the body has all these different parts, and that's such a value. Can you share your art? Some of you guys are gifted art-wise. Make somebody a gift. Could you share your family? Could you share a meal? Do you know why all those things feel so good to do? Because they do feel good to do, right? When you finally bring yourself to do them, you're like, that felt really good. Do you know why? Because it pleases God and we know it. Look at verse 16. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You can just feel his pleasure when you do it. It's because you, you know you're doing something that your creator has made you to do, right? To love other people and serve other people. And, and what else do we want to do except please the one who made us? Let me read you some Ephesians. So Ephesians 2, it puts the, the grace and, and the works in proper order. It says this, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works that no one can boast. And then listen to this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that a cool idea? To think about God has prepared good works for you to do in this life, like ahead of time. And in Ephesians, you know it was like really a long time ago. He prepared good works for you to do beforehand that you should walk in them. Isn't that interesting wording? That like he prepared some things for you to do in this world and then you just kind of like walk into them. Isn't that cool? It's amazing. And I just want to say like, let's make sure that we do all the good God has prepared for us to do. Amen? Let's share everything he's given us to give away. And if necessary, let's just die broke and tired, right? And hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Does that sound good? The cool thing is, is that in the gospel, we've been so unburdened. We're no longer burdened by our sin. 
because it's forgiven. And we're no longer burdened by just trying to live up to the law so that now we can just like give ourselves, right? And I think that's something that we need to see. So praise God, bless your neighbor. That's how this little band of persecuted believers in the Roman Empire spread out over the world. It was the ordinary Christian life, ordinary Christian life. And the Lord's going to do that through you too, because Jesus is the same, right? Yesterday, today, and forever. And because we are being fed by grace from an altar, even the priests weren't allowed to touch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that. We just thank you for you completely working our salvation in Jesus. That you've removed all of our sin. That you've secured our future. That you've given us access every day to grace. Grace that strengthens our souls. Grace that makes us able to serve others. And we just pray, Lord, that you would show us the good works you have prepared for us to do and help us to walk in them. We just pray, Lord, that you would more and more your spirit would stir us to think about what good can we do by the power of your spirit and what can we share that you've given us. And I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for this church that, that does this and we just pray, Lord, that we would do it more and more. And thank you for the, the unity and the love and the joy that you've given these people, that you've given us together. And we pray, Lord, that it, we would be able to share it with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.